0: If you want to turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 13. This will be our final message on just going through and doing a few of the Proverbs over the last six weeks. And so far in our series, we've learned that the direct, our direction determines our destination. We saw that in Proverbs 7, 6 through 27. The second one we uh, learned was that life is a series of of mid-course corrections. We found that in Proverbs 22, verse 3. Proverbs 3 is that we shouldn't trust our hearts, or excuse me, the third one we listened to was that we shouldn't trust our hearts, but should trust our hearts to God. We saw that in Proverbs 3, verse 5. The fifth um, or fourth message was wise people seek counsel, and that's Proverbs 15, 22. And last week we learned that our attention, or what we focus on in life, determines our direction, which then determines our destination. And that was in Proverbs 4.25. So what do you do when we're walking a path and we have a destination in mind, a dream that we have, or some hope that we want to fulfill, and it seems like we can't get there? It seems like we come up upon a roadblock and there's no detour signs. We try to back up and maybe try to go in another direction and that way is blocked. How many people try to get somewhere and you find a long train has stopped right in front of you? And it's a long freight train. You look this way, you look that way, you can't even see the end of it. And so you back up. And you try to go around and you run into it again, and you back up, you turn around, and you run into it again. Sometimes in life, it seems like that happens with our dreams, it seems like that happens with our hopes and what we thought was our destination. For years, I had yearned to be a full-time firefighter. When I got out of the military and I, I decided or trying to decide what career I wanted to get into, I thought firefighting would be a good one. I went to EMT. When I was in the Army, and when I got out of the Army, I went to a paramedic, but I really, really wanted to be a full-time firefighter, so I tried to apply. I tried to get into my hometown fire department in Kenosha. I went through the interview process. They have several steps in this interview process. You go and you take a test on general firefighting skills. It's also a little bit of a civil service test. It's a test to see what kind of a firefighter you would be and and the decisions you make. Scored really, really well on it. And so they invited me to take the physical agility test. And believe it or not, at one time in my life, I was really in shape. I'm still in shape today. Round is a shape, right? So I was in shape, and I scored really, really high on that. So when they put out the rankings, I was ranked seven out of a list of 125 candidates. So, and they were hiring 10 people. So I was guaranteed to get an interview. Waiting for the letter, waiting for the le- letter. And then I run into one of the captains on the fire department. I said, when are they sending out the letters? I said, it just seems like it's taking forever. I mean, I know it's government. Everything takes a long time. But when are we getting the letters? He goes, oh, he goes, yeah, it's kind of a big brouhaha down in City Hall right now. Apparently, the fire chief's son applied for a position and the fire chief was found to be correcting some of the exams. And although he can prove he didn't touch his sons because he corrected some of the exams and his son's name was in it, they threw out everything and they're starting over. So, yeah, as I said, is there a bird chirping in here? (laughs) Or somebody's cell phone. Um, So the next year comes around and they repeat it. So go through the written test, score really well. Go through the physical agility test, score really well. This time I'm number eight on a candidate list of 250 people. And they're hiring now 10 people right away and 10 people in the next six months. So I'm almost, unless I really tank this interview, I'm going to get a job. So I'm all excited. I'm going to go get, get to be a firefighter on Kenosha Fire Department. So I go to the interview. Interview is going really well. And if, you've, if you ever interview people one of the th- or ever go to a lot of job interviews, one of the things you want to know is when you get to the end of the interview, is there anything else that I can answer for you or anything else I could tell you about myself that would you know, help you make a decision uh, about me and, and everything? And you know, they asked me a few more questions. And then I asked, so you know, when should I expect my phone call? you know, for the next stage of the interview process. And the the person running the interview kind of looked down and said, well, honestly, we're going through these interviews with everybody and according to their rankings, but it's just kind of a formality. He said, unfortunately, somebody sued the Kenosha Fire Department that we don't have enough diversity. And you're Caucasian and you're male, so you probably won't get a call. We, have to, we are forced to hire um, probably female African-American or Hispanic or, or minority people. And I'm, fu- I'm fully for that. Don't think I'm being racist. I'm not. So I totally had that door slammed on me again. Well, then a friend of mine said, you know, Pleasant Prairie, right next door, is hiring full-time firefighters now. And we could take all of this and kind of transfer it over toward Pleasant Prairie. And by the way, not only are they hiring firefighters, they are hiring people who are EMS instructors, which I was one. I was a college level um, paramedic instructor. And so I said, "Okay, I can get that. And then if I want to become a career firefighter, I can just kind of just choose to take a demotion and go to the line companies. And so I went to that interview. This interview is the most interesting interview of my entire life. So usually when you go and interview for a fire department, there's a bunch of fire officers. You have your captains, your lieutenants, maybe a chief or two. They sit there and they interview you. Well, since you're going for an officer position, the Fire and Police Commission gets to interview you. And the Fire and Police Commission is made up of politicians who know nothing about the fire service, ironically. And so I sat down in front of five people, and the head of the Fire and Police Commission is in the middle, and I'm sitting at a table across from them. And I could smell the alcohol as soon as I walked in the room. The guy is obviously very drunk. And I thought, this is going to be a very interesting interview. He's sitting there, his nose is red, he's slurring his words, everything else, and has a pack of Lucky Strikes sitting there in his pocket. And he goes, how much do you drink? I was like, um, I really don't. Dr- oh no, he asked me. I'm sorry. What is your favorite drink? I said, well, Dr. Pepper, and if I can't get Dr. Pepper, A&W root beer. He's like, I'm talking alcohol, you smart bleepy dee bleep. And I was like, well, I really don't drink alcohol, sir. I don't do well with it, and I don't act very appropriately when I drink, so I try not to. And and he goes, you don't drink? Oh, well, well, how much do you smoke? I was like. Um, well, given that smoking is forbidden in the fire department now, and I quit when I was 23 because I wanted to be a good example for my kids, um, I don't smoke. You, you don't drink? And you don't smoke? You're no fun! What makes you think you this fire department wants you to be on them? <laughs> and I'm flabbergasted. I'm looking at this guy, I'm like, and I'm starting to get a little riled now because he's kind of trying to bully me, and I don't react well to being bullied, even today. And I looked at him and I said, well, it's always been my belief, sir, that if you need a chemical to make yourself more socially acceptable to people, that is a major personality fault in you. And that ended the interview. That was the end of me trying to become a full-time firefighter. All of that is not just an interesting story about my life. It's just to warn you up to this idea about walking a path of our life with God. And what happens when you have this dream and you have all kinds of roadblocks thrown in your way? What happens when you have this dream that you think you're perfect for, but God says no and it seems impossible for you to get there? And that is why Proverbs 13 verse 12 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life let me read that again hope deferred makes the heart sick but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life and father as we go into our final message of this path series this study of a few of the selected Proverbs I ask, Father, that you help anyone here who feels that they should be somewhere else in life, who feels like they've had every door slammed in their face, who feels like you don't care what is happening with them right now. But, Father, everything that comes our way comes according to your permission. Help us to see your loving guidance and your compassion and how you are fulfilling your best plan for our lives and how we can trust in that. Father, I ask this in your name, amen. So today we're gonna look at what happens when we have these plans and these dreams that seem no matter how hard we try, we never can get to what we want. And what do you do when you have a desire to reach a destination? What do you do when you work and work and work only to have what you have worked for destroyed or seemingly just fall through the floor. What are you going to do then? Well, if you are human and you have emotions, you're probably going to feel a little heart-sick at that point, aren't you? You're going to have that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. And then you have a choice. Either stay there and get bitter or ask God why and get better. The Bible has several examples of people who have had repeated times of being heartsick over a blocked road or a blocked dream that they had. One of the most famous examples is a 17-year-old named Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph had huge dreams. He was one of the youngest kids in his family. And he had a dream that one day he would rule over his older brothers and even his father. And then he found suddenly He finds himself in slavery, and the dream died. His heart must have been beyond sick. You want to talk about a gut punch, what happened to Joseph is a huge gut punch. How about Daniel? Daniel, who probably grew up in one of the richest houses in Jerusalem, probably a a child of privilege, Found himself chained to other Israelites and being dragged away to a pagan country hundreds of miles away, thinking that he was probably going to die and ends up having to work for one of the most evil kings that has ever existed. What a gut punch that had to be. How about King David, who got word one day that his newborn son was probably going to die because of the sin he committed? That's a gut punch. How about the Apostle Paul? One of the most famous men in all of the Bible. dealt with a physical disease. He called it the thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. We just know that it severely limited his ability to do God's will for his life. Some people believe, and I would agree with this, that he probably had poor eyesight. That when he was blinded, on the road to Damascus that that condition became permanent to a point that he could not see that well now imagine is imagine struggling to read if your whole life revolves around reading scripture if your whole life revolves around writing scripture writing sermons writing letters all these different things and you can't see they didn't have Braille back then. They didn't have other ways for him to handle this. We don't know what he had, but I think it was this eyesight thing. And I would imagine that his heart was sick. And then, most famously, there's Jesus. The Bible says on a night before he was crucified, he was so heartsick over what was about to happen to him, that he asked the Father, if there's any other way we can do this, if there's any other way we can save humanity without me going to the cross, please take it from me. He was so anguished about it, it said that he sweated drops of blood. So what do you do when your heart's sick? Will we choose to get bitter? Or will we choose to allow God to make us better. How do we work for this? How do we work toward betterness? Because that's what Paul chose. He didn't allow himself to get bitter. He allowed himself to get better. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about exactly what was happening with him. And you can't always avoid what happens in life. But you can always choose how you react to it. Sometimes you'll get that flash of emotions, that flash of negative emotion where you, you throw up your hands and you say, really, God? Really? What am I going to do with this now? But then you have to allow yourself to rest in him and say, okay, God, this has got me a little riled up. What are you trying to speak to my life about? What are you trying to change about me? And what are you trying to lead me into? Paul chose this adversity to make him better and he writes to his friends in the city of Cornith in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8. Paul says to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. God speaking directly to him. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now Paul had some amazing, amazing things happen in his life. His highs were really high, but when he got low, it was really low. To the point of being chained in a dungeon to a Roman guard awaiting an execution. He's now got a physical ailment that he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life. Probably one of the reasons that The apostle Luke was one of his best friends because he was a doctor who would take care of Paul. So he's got this physical ailment. It's probably painful, and it's certainly keeping him from fulfilling his dreams. But look what he did. Number one is that Paul prayed fervently. This was his first step in seeing how to keep himself from becoming bitter, and becoming better is that he prayed fervently it says that Paul prayed three times that God would take this away from him. And God says no. And then God doesn't just say no and let him be. God gives him a little clarity of why he's going through this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What God was telling him there Is that you have this incredible education, Paul? You have this incredible family. You even have wealth. But all that is actually blocking me from being able to use you. I need you to be weak in yourself so that my power has a pure conduit to flow through. The second thing is you can listen to God's voice, that is the second way to be better instead of bitter. In the midst of prayer, it's possible to hear God's voice for you. Romans 8.28 reminds us of this. When it says that we know that in all things God works for those, for the good of those who love him. Paul found a way for God's grace to be sufficient for him, that God's power would be be even better displayed in his weakness and in his physical infirmity. The third way we can keep from becoming bitter and become better is that this is a potential exit on the path toward betterness. And Back to 2 Corinthians, when Paul continues, he said, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Number four, you can use your hardship for God's glory. Whatever Paul had, he didn't let him get it depressed. He didn't let him say, well, if it wasn't for this, I would do more for God. He didn't use it as an excuse to live beneath the, the role that God had for him. He used it to be made more and, and have more of an impact on of the world. He didn't, he didn't follow the, the idea that and an excuse that just because he had his hope deferred, it should make his heart sick. He said, no, my power or God's power can be made perfect in my weakness. And this hope deferred our hope is deferred when we realize our dreams probably aren't going to come true. Maybe you're waiting to get married. Maybe you're waiting to to find a job, get an education. Maybe you're you want a house. Maybe you want, just want something a promotion at work. And and it's come and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. But it's nothing is happening. And it's making your heart sick. There is a reality of life on earth. Earth is earth. And it's not heaven. That means we're going to have trouble. Even Jesus said that. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And I don't know a single person on earth who has had all their dreams fulfilled. I would suspect it wouldn't even be healthy if they did. I point you to the semi-rich celebrity class, Kardashians, or Paris Hilton, whoever you want to point to. Are they really healthy people? Are they really happy? Are they truly living a good life, even for just themselves, not even talking about Christianity, but just for themselves? Sometimes God has to say no to us. Sometimes God has to say no to our dreams. And He's meaning that no to soften us. He's meaning that role or that no to humble us in a positive way because He's protecting us from ourselves. Let's go back to the beginning of the sermon and apply some of these principles to me wanting to be a full-time firefighter. Looking back on it now, almost 30 years ago, that's how you know you're getting old when you can say something 30 years ago. Looking back on it now, if God had given me what I wanted, I definitely wouldn't be here today. Matter of fact, I'd be retired by now from the fire department. There's no way I would have followed God's call into ministry if I would have been a full-time firefighter and given up that career. And with the clarity of 2020 hindsight, I know I would have become probably a nominal Christian, in name only, because the fire department lifestyle would have become the full or the most important thing in my life. And see, that's what we have to understand when God sometimes says no, when God sometimes holds back a dream. He has that the clarity of 2020 hindsight that we have. He sees the entire thing. He sees the end from the beginning. He's already there in the future, he's there in the past. He sees every possible exit on the road that we can take and what it would mean for us. And because he loves us, sometimes he will say no to your dream because he knows what the end will be to that. God loves us so much. He will shut that door that can lead to our destruction. And what you might call a hope deferred might just need to be relabeled to God said no to protect you. Or God has something even better for you that you can't even envision yet because you're not ready yet to receive it. And if you stay on the path He has for you, He will accomplish His dreams for your life. Remember this promise from God's Word. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. How many things? All things. The good, the bad, the ugly, the joyful, the painful. God works for the good of those who love him, all things. Let's apply this to Joseph, one of our examples from earlier. Betrayed by his family, his brothers threw him into a deep pit to leave him for, do- for dead. One brother sneaks back, picks him up out of the hole. He's probably feeling overjoyed. No, that, that brother sells him into slavery. He becomes a slave in a pagan household of a woman who's trying to seduce him. She accuses him falsely of rape, so they throw him in prison. It's getting from bad to bad to worse to worse for Joseph. But in one day, he went from a pit to a prison to a palace and became the second most powerful man on earth. God can do the same for any one of us here. And you know what? In the end... His dream was fulfilled. His, the same brothers that threw him into that pit bowed before him. Even his father fell on his knees and thanked God for everything that Joseph went through because he meant it to save the whole Middle East from that famine. You know, most often, God gives us a thorn in our flesh. Sometimes an obstacle or two in life, because we have to learn to trust him. Not in our own strength, not in our own talents, not in our own abilities. We have to learn to trust him. Sometimes he does a good thing that is more exactly what we wanted, and that one thing can be beyond what we asked for. He can work in either thing. And I believe that every dead or dying dream is in the hands of God today. You know, God knows about your dreams. He wants you to share your dreams with him. Even if it's something crazy, he wants to hear about it. He cares about your dreams. But God cares about you more. He cares about spending eternity with you more. He cares more about spending eternity with you and being able to reward you in that eternity. So sometimes he will say no. Sometimes, though, that God buries our dreams because they wouldn't be good for us. Sometimes he asks us to bury our dreams so that we can allow them to be resurrected into something better. Let's review. What do you do when your hope gets deferred? The natural human reaction is to get hard sick. But if you're a Christian here today, you can pray fervently. You can listen for God's voice. You can accept the reality and find the good in it, and you can use your hardship for God's glory. And if you persevere, if you do all of these things, you can believe that somewhere along your path, God will do something outrageously good for you. He loves you, He wants to bless you. The second part of Proverbs 13, 12 says, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And I want to close with that part this morning. What do you do when your longing is fulfilled? You remember the Israelites wandering the desert for 40 years? They disobeyed God and they lost their chance to enter the promised land. In many of their minds, that promise is dead. They're just going to be this wandering, nomadic, tribe of 10 million people wandering the Sinai Desert. But then one day God says to Joshua, let's resurrect the dream Joshua. Line up the people tomorrow. We're going to cross the Jordan River and we're going to take that land. And if you read about it in Genesis, it says that they chose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe. Each Each man was to pick up a large stone from the middle of the Jordan when God parted the Jordan and bring it to that far shore. And they were to make a stack of these stones. And it was to be a a a memorial for them so whenever they saw these stones, they remembered how God led them into the dream that he promised them. So that is the principle. When God fulfills your dream make sure you tell other people about it. Brag about the goodness of God in your life. I know some people wonder why I give so many personal stories in my sermons about what God's done in my life. And this principle is exactly why. To proclaim God's goodness every chance I can get. And if you can use a personal story to do it, people can't argue with you about that. You know, they can argue about the Bible, they can argue about when it was written, who wrote it, all these different kind of things, but they can't argue your experience away. In the famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, the second verse says this, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. In the King James Version, that monument that the Israelites raised was called their Ebenezer. It was a rock. It was a a stone or a monument of remembrance of how God led them along the path to this destination. Now, did they take some exits they weren't supposed to take? Yeah. Quite a few, actually. Did they fail to walk in faith much of the time? Yeah. Did they even openly rebel against God? Yes, 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 like all of us. But in spite of the wrong exodus, in spite of their lack of faith, in spite of the rebellion, God was faithful to bring them into the promise he had for them. So remember that. Remember that when your hope is deferred and your heart is sick and you don't know what to do, God is Faithful. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We're going to go into our time of communion as we close. Because you know what communion is? This is our Ebenezer stone from Jesus to remind us of what he has done for us. This is the proof that we have that we look to once a month or so to remind ourselves that God is good for us and to us and with us. The Apostle Paul gave us instructions, and he said, And on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and broke it, And gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Lord, as we hold this bread in our hands, the unleavened bread, symbolizing the sinless one becoming sin for us. We remember everything he has done for us. We remember everything exactly the cost that was paid for us to be one into heaven, for us to be the children of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body on that cross. We thank you for the nails that hung you there. And we thank you for the heart that held you there until all the sin of mankind was paid for. Lord Jesus, as we partake of this bread, let us replace within our spirits this remembrance of this so that our, whole, our hearts will never become heartsick over the things of this world, but our hearts will be pointed directly at you in heaven. Let us partake of the bread. Hallelujah. We thank you, Jesus. We honor you, Lord. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. He blessed it, passed it to his disciples, saying, Take and drink. This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is being spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord. The Bible says the life is in the blood, and our new life is also found in the blood of the Lamb, the blood that was shed for us on Calvary's cross. And not only does it wash away our sins, it is our Ebenezer stone, the stone of remembrance, that points us to another day that will happen. When the trumpet shall sound, when the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we will enjoy you forever in heaven. So Father, as we partake of this cup, I ask, Lord, that you just use it to cement in our hearts a faith that will trust you through everything we're going through in life. Father, we thank you, Lord. Let us partake of the cup. Hallelujah. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, that you are a good God, that even if we want to walk down a path that is dangerous, you will... Pull us back and try to keep us from wandering to our own destructions and put us on a path that will be for our best benefit, Father. And not only our best benefit, but the best benefit of your kingdom. So, Father, I ask, Lord, that you just help us to examine our hearts this morning. That if we are on a path or doing something, Father, that is not pleasing to you that could lead to our destruction that you will pick us up like a a small child and put them on the path that, that we should be on, Father. Lord God, I thank you, Lord. I bless your people this morning. And I ask, Father, that you use them this week to make a difference in somebody's life and change their path for all eternity.